Over the past three weeks, we've been walking with Jesus in the gospel accounts along what's been called the way of suffering or the way of the cross. And we have seen Jesus weeping in anguish in a garden as he anticipates the cross. We have seen him denied and betrayed by his dearest friends. We have seen him unjustly accused and tried before a sham court. And now today, we will see him condemned and mocked by his own people. Uh, We'll be mostly in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We'll be in Matthew, mostly chapter 27, along with some of the other accounts. Uh, So as you turn there, let me pray for us as we walk with Jesus along his road of suffering. Let's pray. Father, as we see the sufferings of your son today, help us experience his love, though it is too great to understand fully. Then we will be satisfied with all of the life and fullness that comes from you. Through him we pray, amen. Uh, In one of his more famous plays, uh, Shakespeare writes a masterful story that explores issues of guilt and what guilt does to the human soul. This is not Romeo and Juliet, this is uh, Macbeth. I don't know if you remember Macbeth from high school. I didn't remember much of it either. I really wish the uh, No No Fear Shakespeare website had been a thing when I was in high school so they could translate it for me. Uh, But one of the scenes that I do remember from Macbeth because it's so vivid in its portrayal of how guilt ravages a person is when Lady Macbeth, who's an accomplice to the murder of King Duncan at the beginning of the play, she has these nightmares and she sleepwalks because she's haunted by her guilt. And so in the night, she, uh, still asleep, would rise and confess her sins out loud, trying desperately to wash her hands over and over again with water to rinse off the blood. And in her sleep, she says what are probably the most memorable lines of the play. She says, out, damned spot, out, I say. Why should I be afraid? Who knows it? When none can call our guilt to account. Yet who would have thought the old man to have so much blood? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Give me your hand. What's done cannot be undone. And if you know the rest of the play, you know that Lady Macbeth never finds freedom from her guilt, but she's driven by it to madness and to despair. And Shakespeare never really gets around to telling us what a person is to do when they find themselves with bloody hands, with guilty hearts. Uh, But there's a much better story written by an even more masterful author who writes himself into the story to deal with the blood on our hands. Matthew 27, we'll start in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So it's early in the morning, on what we call Good Friday, during the Jewish festival of Passover. And apparently each year, the Roman governor Pilate would release a prisoner 
as perhaps an act of goodwill or appeasement with the Jewish nation. There was quite a bit of tension between the Jews and the occupying Roman government. And perhaps this is why there's a crowd beginning to gather outside of Pilate's quarters. They're here for the big deal, for the big prisoner release of of the year. And there we are introduced to a character that's totally silent in the narrative, but he's still quite significant. Bar Abbas, or Barabbas, as we usually say it. And Matthew calls Barabbas notorious or infamous. Uh, The Gospel of Mark tells us that he was a Jewish rebel who had committed murder in an uprising against Rome. Uh, The Gospel of Luke puts it pretty clearly. It says, he was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So Barabbas, he's a man with blood on his hands. But Pilate sees in Barabbas an opportunity. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And as we saw last week, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent of any crimes, right? In fact, between all of the gospel accounts, it seems that Pilate declares Jesus' innocence at least five or six times to the religious leaders. And Pilate is intrigued by Jesus, perhaps even frightened by Jesus, In John's gospel, after the religious leaders insist that Jesus must die because he blasphemed God by claiming to be God's son, when Pilate hears that, it says this, when Pilate heard this statement that Jesus had claimed to be God's son, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And you add to this his wife's nightmare and her message urging him to have nothing to do with that innocent man. And you have a very perplexed, haunted Roman governor. He doesn't seem to want to execute Jesus. And we see him try to find multiple escape routes. And here's one of them with Barabbas. He picks up on the fact that the religious leaders are envious of Jesus' popularity with the people. And so he thinks, surely, (laughs) surely the crowds will ask for Jesus to be released and leave the troublemaker Barabbas in prison. But his plan totally backfires. Verse 20. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? It's like, let's make sure that I heard you correctly. And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
okay, how, how did we get here? Wasn't this the same crowd that was just singing Jesus' praises and laying their, their, down their jackets on the road as he entered Jerusalem just, just days before? Well, I mean, scholars have noted that it's possible that the makeup of this crowd outside of Pilate's quarters uh, was different than the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Perhaps these are native Jerusalem folk, uh, whereas the crowd that hailed Jesus was largely perhaps from the north, from, from Galilee. But it's also possible, and I think quite likely, that this crowd was made up of many of the same people and that Pilate underestimated a few things. Pilate underestimated the disappointment and disillusionment that the people felt with Jesus. I mean, after he entered Jerusalem, he didn't start a revolution. Uh, He didn't free Jerusalem from the Romans. All he did was drive out the money changers uh, out of the temple and chastise the leaders for running a racket in God's house. And now he stands before them, tied up, beaten, and humiliated. He isn't who they thought he would be, and he didn't do what they thought he would do. And so perhaps in their disillusionment, they opt for Barabbas, the nationalist, the revolutionary macho Messiah, the political savior who maybe he will deliver us in the way that they had hoped that Jesus would. And Pilate underestimated the fickleness of the human heart He underestimated how quickly we can turn on someone when they no longer give us what we want from them. And so Pilate continues to protest Jesus' innocence, but the mob cannot be reasoned with. They argue with volume, screaming louder and louder as Luke records it, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices, their shouts prevailed. And now Pilate finds himself in the pressure cooker with the loud demands of an angry mob on one side and the silent testimony of an innocent man on the other. And you get the sense that Pilate wants to do the right thing here, uh, but only if it doesn't cost him too much. And John's account helps us see what tips the scale. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was on the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Sarcastically, perhaps. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You see, they found Pilate's pressure point. Put simply, 
Pilate desires to protect his career more than he desires to protect an innocent man. He's willing to do the right thing until it costs him what he loves most. And you know you love something too much when you're willing to compromise what's right to get it or to keep it. Uh, But let's not be too hard on Pilate, right? Um, We know this. It's easy not to cheat on a test until the pressure of acceptance to your dream college is on the line. Uh, It's easy not to lie until you're trying to cover up your own mistakes. Uh, It's easy to love or serve your family or someone in need until it costs you something that you'd rather be doing. We understand Pilate all too well. And this just makes it all the more striking to me when we read these narratives to see Jesus as the only character in the story not looking out for his own interest. All right, think about it. The disciples have fled for their lives. The priests have delivered Jesus over out of envy. Pilate is just trying to protect his job. But Jesus, Jesus is there, as the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians 2, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility he is counting others more significant than himself. Jesus is not looking out for his own interest, but for the interest of others. But Pilate, at last, acquiesces to the crowd, but not without attempting to wash the blood off of his hands. Back to Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And of course, the water could do no more for Pilate than it could have for Lady Macbeth. He still has blood on his hands. Uh, His attempt to pass the blame for Jesus' death does not make him any less guilty of delivering over an innocent man to die. Uh, But the crowd here is all too glad to accept the blame uh, because they think they are doing their nation and God a service by ridding themselves of an imposter and a blasphemer. And so all the people answer, his blood be on us and on our children. It just makes you wonder, where, where is all this venomous hate coming from? Let his blood be on us, our children. We don't, we don't care. I suppose we are capable of far worse than we think we are. They do not hesitate to send an innocent man, the very son of God, to his death. But truly, they have no idea what they are doing. And some in the history of the church have wrongly taken this verse to lay blame at the feet of the Jewish people alone, then and even now for the death of Christ. But to do that is to miss the entire point of the story. You see, every character plays a part in the death of Christ. His own disciple betrays him and then the rest abandoned him. The senior pastors of God's people orchestrate the whole thing. Uh, The ranking government official fails to uphold justice. Ordinary bystanders demand his death. Blue-collar soldiers carry it out. The point is that there is no one without blood on their hands, ourselves included. 
We have all played a part in the damning of God. But how, how could that be? <laughs> well, there's a famous African-American slave spiritual that asks a haunting question. And uh, it's accompanied by a somewhat haunting melody. I was just going to quote it to you, but Daniel Cresswell told me that he would not be friends with me anymore if I did not sing it to you. So you may know it. It just goes like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? What were these slave riders trying to tell us? Why would the death of Christ be cause for trembling? The suffering of an innocent man might draw our pity. And the writers of this song would have seen plenty of that. But trembling? It's because the writers of this song knew that they were there. And that we were there too and not in a good way. We have each in our own way shouted, away with you to our maker. By our sin, we have rejected his rule over our lives many times. And in that sense, we have wished him dead and judged him unfit to be our king. And add to this the fact that we have, we have grossly mistreated our fellow humans those made in God's image. We have borne murderous hatred in our hearts, perhaps restrained only at times by lack of opportunity or fear of retribution. And if we were to look very hard or for very long, we would find that much of our wealth and luxury is built on the blood of the innocent. I mean, you listen to the news these days and it makes you wonder, is there anyone without a skeleton in their closet? Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> we all have blood on our hands. Everyone in this story does. But there's another way that you might find yourself there in this story, in a good way. In the place of the guilty man who goes free. Did you forget about him? Barabbas. Because you see, Jesus is condemned in his place. Uh, one commentator notes that the two men that were to be crucified along Jesus, alongside Jesus, were likely far more than mere robbers, but they were rebels along with Barabbas. The sentence of crucifixion was too harsh for mere robbery. Three crosses were prepared. Who do you think belonged on the third cross? Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Scourging is a terrible method of weakening a victim for crucifixion. 
weakening them for crucifixion by tying them to a post, stripping them naked, and then whipping them on a, with a multi-tasseled whip of leather, bone, and glass until the torturers were either tired or the commanding officer told them to stop. And it's almost surprising that the gospel writers don't spend more time dwelling on the physical brutality of Jesus' punishment. Perhaps the first readers were all too familiar with scourging, or perhaps it's the mocking that follows that cuts far deeper than any whip. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. We see in Barabbas a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has taken our place. And somehow, as the cat of nine tails fell across his back, Jesus was not merely being tortured by human hands. He was mysteriously, wonderfully taking the punishment for your sin and mine. And so, as many of us read the account of Jesus' torture, sometimes it causes us to tremble because we know that this punishment belonged to us that this should have been me. And even as we were there mocking and scorning our maker, he was bearing our sins. And as we look upon his scourging, his beating, we are meant to see the dreadful force of the wrath of God against sin. And the severity of Jesus' torture and his ridicule ought to cause us to be repulsed by our own sin. And yet, it also ought to give us great confidence that our sins have been fully dealt with and will never be held against us. In the words of the Old Testament writer Isaiah, written hundreds of years before the death of Christ, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So then the Apostle Paul, a man with plenty of blood on his hands, would later write, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we tremble not just in grief, but in awe and wonder because Jesus willingly did all this in our place 
And so we sing, I am forgiven because you were forsaken. And I am accepted because you were condemned. Amazing love, how can it be? We tremble because we have never known love like this. The reformer John Calvin said of Jesus' torture and mockery that it was yet another proof which Christ gave of his astonishing love for us that there was no humiliation to which he would not submit himself in order to save us. And you see, when you realize that all of this happened, not just to like save people generically, but for you and in your place, now sometimes it causes you to tremble with love because no one has ever loved you. No one has ever loved you like this. Romans 5, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all the water in the world could not remove the blood from our hands. Only blood can wash away blood. And if it's not clear what I mean by that, let me just set aside the metaphors for a moment and try to be clear. What I'm saying is that self-cleanup acts cannot remove your guilt or ease your wounds. Only clinging to the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf can deal with your guilt. And I mean this in two ways. One, objectively, We are guilty before God and our sin requires justice. But then also more personally or subjectively, our guilt is our inability to deal with the constant fear of exposure and fear of punishment. Guilt guilt always has you looking over your shoulder, living in shame and in secret, knowing that you will somehow pay for your misdeeds, but you don't know how. And you don't know when. And knowing Jesus frees you from this because he was exposed for you. And he was punished for you. Listen, you don't have to be afraid of exposure or confession of sin because the fact that you are a messed up individual is old news if Jesus had to die for you. And even though you may have to experience consequences for your actions, You don't have to fear retribution, not ultimately, because Jesus has borne the only retribution that can truly destroy you. And so I tremble because I am overwhelmed by the love of Christ in the face of my certain guilt. And like Barabbas, I'm set free, now a son of the Father. You know, it's it's another irony of this masterfully written story that the very name of the prisoner, Bar Abbas, literally means son of the father. Bar is Aramaic for son and then Abba. You know, we pray Abba, father. We have names like this, right? If your last name's Johnson, right? That's kind of comes from son of John or even my name, Carson. It's like Scottish origin, I think. It means son of the marsh or swampy place, the car. Nothing to do with automobiles, sorry. But... Um, 
Barabbas' name is a name, it's, no, it's a name like that, Johnson or Carson, and it simply means the father's son. <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Because So remember, the Gospel of Luke made it super clear what Barabbas was guilty of. He was a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder. Insurrection and murder. Really, that's what all the other characters in the story are guilty of, right? And in a way, that is our crime against God as well. But here we have Jesus, the innocent, true son of the Father, so that the guilty man named son of the Father can go free. (laughs) It's like somebody planned all this, right? (laughs) The son is condemned as a rebel, so that the rebel can be released as a son. And see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Man, there is no other God like this. There's no other love like this. There's no other person like this. Now the story, I, reading this story, I can't help, think, uh, help but think of the last stanza of one of my favorite poems, of which there's only like three, but this is one of them, and it goes like this. It says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no other God has wounds, but thou alone. If you're looking for a God to follow, you will not find another one like this. No other God takes his throne or receives his crown like Jesus did. No other king dies for the sake of his enemies. You know, it's pretty amazing to come back to Jerusalem and revisit just a few weeks later in the story. We hear the apostle Peter Offer the forgiveness of God to this very same crowd that was just chanting with rage. Uh, After healing a man in the temple, Peter says this. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. This is our story, too. Though we have killed the author of life, he has written the story in such a way that his blood would cover the blood on our hands. There is no one that Jesus does not long to forgive. 
if he would die and say this to the very ones shouting for him to be crucified, he would die for you and he would die for everyone you know. In the words of Lady Macbeth, what's done cannot be undone. But Christ would say what's done can be forgiven. So, Give him your hands. There is so much blood. More than enough to wash away our guilty hands, our guilty hearts, all of us. Turn to God that your sins may be blotted out. I'm going to close with the words of a prayer written for the church. And if you know that you need Jesus to stand in your place and to wash away the guilt of your hands, then you can make this your prayer today too. Let's pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. So now Lord, we say with an entirely different meaning, let your blood be on us. Not defiantly as the crowds that crucified you, but desperately. With gratitude and hope and adoration as those who depend wholly on your sacrifice. Jesus, let your blood be upon us. Let it cover us. Let the blood that flows from your head, your hands, your feet, wash over us and cleanse us from all of our iniquity. And we pray this because of all that you have done for us. Amen. When I hear the story of Barabbas, I always wonder if Jesus knew. If when all this was going on outside, if Jesus was there, and if he heard them choose Barabbas and condemn him to death. And I imagine they, they did. That's how I think it went. Um, and then I wonder, what if, what if they didn't ask the crowd who to be released? What if they asked Jesus who should be released? And I know who he would choose because he has done it for me. And if you follow Christ, he's done it for you. And so, beloved Barabbasites, come to the table and remember how much you are loved. For on the night on which he was betrayed, 